As we begin the message this morning, allow me to ask you a question to ponder in your own heart and mind. And here's the question. What is it that distinguishes Jesus from all other religious leaders in the past and even in the present? If you had to pick one thing, what would you say? What sets Jesus apart in comparison with Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna or Joseph Smith or just fill in the blank? If you could only pick one item, it would have to be the empty tomb. No other religious leader, no other religion founder in all of history has raised himself from the dead. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It should come as no surprise then that many have tried to deny the resurrection of Jesus down through the years. I think of Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He was the man who put Harvard Law School on the map. He was the famous royal professor of law. He wrote three volumes on the laws of legal evidence that were so good they are still used today. He was a skeptic, and he used to mock Christians in his classroom. One day, the Christians in his class challenged him to apply his three volumes on the laws of legal evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He took a leave of absence to carry out the project, and in the process, he became a Christian. He wrote a book saying that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested facts of history according to the laws of legal evidence. Then there were the two men who taught at Oxford, Lord Littleton and Benjamin Gilbert West. They wanted to destroy Christianity. To do that, they knew they had to refute two things. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew those two items had to be destroyed or refuted. Lord Littleton took the conversion of Saul, and Benjamin Gilbert West took the resurrection. They each went their separate ways to do their research, and each independently became followers of Jesus Christ. Then there's Dr. Frank Morrison, who was also a lawyer, He thought the resurrection of Jesus was a myth that ruined Christ's life. He believed that the life of Jesus Christ was one of the most noble lives ever lived, but somebody ruined the impact of the story by coming along later and tacking on this resurrection story, which obviously in his mind was ludicrous. He figured that an intellectual approach to history would refute that ending to the story. He was so committed to undoing what he felt was something that should not be tacked onto the life of Christ. He was so committed to undoing this that he took his own money and he went to Israel to research the issue for the purpose of writing a book against the resurrection of Jesus. In the process, he became a Christian. He ended up writing a book titled Who Moved the Stone? The first chapter is significantly titled, The Book That Refused to be Written. 
You know, I wish more people would set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus because we'd have a lot more Christians running around. In more recent times, Josh McDowell followed the same pattern. As a pre-law student, he set out to make a joke of Christianity. In the process, he became a Christian. Since that time, he has spent 1,000, over 1,000 hours of study in the finest libraries in this country and England and the continent. The result has been his very helpful books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, More Than Just a Carpenter, and other books with the same theme. Much of the research for this message actually comes from his work. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 16 as we move into the final chapter of our trek through the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 16, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. The hymn, of course, is Jesus. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large." I mentioned in the last message that if you study the gospel accounts closely, you will find that there were five preventatives or five precautions described in the four gospel records to keep Jesus in the tomb. Number one, the tomb was a solid rock tomb of one entrance. These tombs in Israel had an entrance of about four and a half to five feet tall, which is why Peter and John had to bend over to look into the tomb when they ran to it after receiving the report that the tomb was empty. In other words, there was only one way in and one way out. Secondly, number two, John 19.39 says, Jesus was buried according to the Jewish burial customs. This involved about 100 pounds of spices that would encase the body. They would take... 11-inch wide strips of cloth to wrap the body, the arms, the legs, uh, the torso. And between each layer, they would place gummy spices. This was to eliminate some of the stench from decay. So Jesus had approximately 100 pounds of encasement on his body. Number three, a large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. As we just read here in verse 4, Mark tells us it was an extremely large stone. The Bezai manuscript of the Greek text of Mark 16:4 says, a stone that could not be moved by 20 men. Two non-Christian engineering professors from Georgia Tech University went on a tour of Israel and they researched this issue, ancient burial customs and tombs and everything, and they said that the stone had to be at least one and a half to two tons. Number four, a guard unit was placed at the tomb. The Greek word is kustodion. A kustodia was not a podunk guard unit as is often pictured in paintings of the tomb. Each man was trained to protect six square feet 
There would be 16 men, four on a side. As a team, they could protect 36 square yards against an entire battalion of soldiers. And then fifthly, there was a Roman seal placed on the tomb. A Roman seal was a clay pack or a piece of wax that was marked by the impression of the ring of a Roman official. That seal stood for the power and authority of the entire Roman Empire. No one touched a Roman seal. If anyone touched a Roman seal, he was crucified upside down. So those are the five precautions or five preventatives to make sure Jesus stayed put. Mark doesn't mention all of these specifically, but that is the combined description from all four gospel accounts. So what happened at the tomb of Jesus almost 2,000 years ago? The biblical explanation is quite simple. Notice how Mark describes it beginning in verse 1. He says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene... Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Mark tells us that this took place when the Sabbath was passed. And Matthew adds the phrase, as the first day of the week began to dawn. That means that it took place early Sunday morning. The Sabbath was Saturday, and it officially ended at sundown. Once the Sabbath ended that evening, whatever time sundown was, 7 o'clock, 7.30, whatever, these two Marys and Salome would have been able to purchase spices. The markets in Israel still to this day all open back up on Saturday night once Sabbath is over. So these two Marys, these women would have been able to, along with Salome, would have been able to purchase spices and prepare them on Saturday night. Mark informs us that they bought the spices specifically for this occasion. By the way, there are actually several women involved in this, but Mark mentions only three. He mentions Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of one of the disciples known as James the Less, and Salome. Their intention was to finish anointing the body of Jesus because the burial had taken place quickly on Friday afternoon to get Jesus in the tomb before sundown on Friday. Remember now, they weren't expecting the resurrection. In fact, Mark tells us a little later that they were wondering how they would move this huge stone away from the entrance of the tomb. Verse 2 tells us, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. If you compare all the gospel accounts, it seems likely that the women set out to go to the tomb while it was still dark, because one of the gospel writers mentions it was dark. Mark tells us that it was light. So the chronology is this. They set out to go to the tomb while it was still dark, but they arrived at the tomb after sunrise. In verse 3, they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now, that was the big problem looming in their minds. They knew the tomb would be covered up by a large stone. They actually had another problem that they didn't realize, and that was the fact that the tomb had been sealed, and a guard had been posted by the tomb. They didn't know about that because, if you'll remember 
from the earlier part of the story, that happened after the burial. Verse 4 tells us, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. How did this stone get rolled away? Matthew's gospel answers that question for us. So go from Mark 16 back to the left to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and look at verse 2. Matthew 28, 2 says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Matthew is the only one of the four gospel writers to include this detail about an earthquake. Because none of the other gospel writers say anything about it, and because none of the people involved in the resurrection story say anything about it either, it is possible that this earthquake wasn't one that encompassed a large area. It may have been confined to the immediate area around the grave. Remember now, the angel did not roll the stone away to let Jesus out. The angel rolled the stone away so everyone could see Jesus was no longer in the tomb. Not only did this angel roll back the stone from the door, he sat on it. Verse 3 tells us, His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Just as an angel came to Mary to announce that she would give birth to Jesus, and just as angels were present at his birth, so also an angel was present at his resurrection. The appearance of this angel, as described here, and not only here, but in all the gospel accounts, the appearance was majestic, it was dynamic, it was powerful, and even intimidating. Fear-inspiring. In fact, verse 4 says, The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The word shook here in this verse translates a Greek word that has the same root as earthquake back in verse 2. Matthew wants us to know that these soldiers experienced personal earthquakes of both mind and body. He seems to be saying that these guards passed out or became completely traumatized and unconscious. They weren't merely afraid. Understand that. They weren't merely afraid. They became totally immobile. If it were only a matter of fear, they would have pushed through the fear because they knew what would happen to them if they allowed anyone access to this tomb. They knew that their punishment would be brutal death. And remember, this was a highly trained guard unit. So it would have taken a mighty powerful experience to immobilize them. The combination of the great earthquake And the appearance of the angel was stunning beyond anything they had ever experienced. So what do the gospel records tell us about the events that took place early on that Sunday morning? Very simply, they tell us there was a great earthquake. An angel came from heaven. The guard unit fell as dead. And the angel rolled the stone away. That's what happened. But... 
as you know, many people won't accept that explanation. Therefore, many false theories have been developed through the years in an attempt to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The theories are they're unbelievable. They're mind-boggling when you stop to consider them. Let me mention to you this morning four of the most popular false theories in our world today. One of them is actually recorded right here in Matthew 28. It began back then, and it is still believed by many to this day. Look at Matthew 28, verse 11. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So this view states that the guard unit fell asleep, and while they were asleep, the disciples stole the body of Jesus and falsified the resurrection. That's a common theory. As Matthew says here in verse 15, it's commonly reported among the Jews until this day. In other words, at the time Matthew wrote his gospel, which would have been you know, 20, 30 years after the events, when Matthew wrote his gospel, that was still the common explanation among the Jewish people about what happened at the tomb. So that was a common theory. It's still a common theory, but it has tremendous problems. First of all, there is the breaking of the Roman seal. The disciples knew that the punishment for breaking a Roman seal was automatic crucifixion upside down until your insides ran into your throat and choked you. The disciples were so afraid during the trials of Jesus that they forsook the Lord. They ran. They bolted. So there's no way they would have done something like breaking the Roman seal. Furthermore, second problem with this view, the position of the stone doesn't match up with this view in any way, shape, or form. Matthew says the large stone was rolled away. Mark says it was rolled up the hill away from the tomb. Luke says the same thing. In fact, this stone was in such a position that in John chapter 20, verse 1, John uses the Greek word iro to describe the position of the stone. The Greek word iro means to pick up and carry away. If the disciples were going to steal the body of Jesus, why would they try to take the time to roll that huge stone so far up the hill that it looked like it had been carried up the hill? If you're going to steal the body and you've got sleeping soldiers, you don't move the stone that far. You just move it far enough to slip the body out and get out of there. The third problem with this theory is explaining how the guard unit fell asleep. This guard unit would have never fallen asleep because the punishment was automatic execution. They were stripped and burned alive with their own clothes. Listen, they would have been beating each other over the head to stay awake. If you've got that many of them, 16 men four on a side, 
Really? You're going to say all 16 fell asleep and no one stayed awake to keep the others awake? It's ridiculous. A fourth problem with this view is the fact that the tomb was not empty. John chapter 20 tells us that the grave clothes were still in the tomb, neatly arranged. Again, you have to ask the question, if the disciples were going to steal the body, why take the time to take the body out of the grave clothes and fold them neatly in the corner of the grave? This theory had so many problems for thinking people that eventually unbelievers developed another one along the same lines but with a little bit different twist. This second theory states that, no, no, the disciples didn't take the body. No, the Romans and the Jews took the body for safety so it could not be stolen. That's a very popular theory to this day. The Romans and the Jews knew that this had the potential to be, you know, a big issue, so they took the body so that it couldn't be stolen and the resurrection be falsified. This view has as many problems as the previous one. For one thing, the tomb that Jesus was buried in was only a few minute walk from Jerusalem. And where did the disciples go to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? They went right into the city. A five to ten minute walk from the city could verify the truthfulness of what the disciples were saying. So the Romans and the Jews, or the Romans or the Jews, whichever group supposedly took the body, they could have killed Christianity in its very beginnings by placing the body of Jesus on a cart and parading it through the streets of Jerusalem saying, here is the body. It's not gone. We took it. We grabbed it to make sure no one would take it. But of course, nothing like that ever happened. They didn't have the body. Then there's another theory, a third very popular theory down through the centuries, actually. This is the theory that states that what happened was the women went to the wrong tomb. And this is the way that this theory is described. The women were crying so much, and you know, if you cry a lot, it does blur your vision. You can't see, your eyes get red. So the, the women were crying so much because of the crucifixion that they couldn't see well, and it was early in the morning, which it was, dusk, dark when they took off, so they ended up going to the wrong tomb. However, Matthew 27, 61 tells us very specifically, and you wonder if it's in, in anticipation of this, that the two Marys were sitting opposite the tomb when Joseph of Arimathea sealed it. These women knew exactly where the tomb was located. They watched it being sealed. Yet, there are still those who maintain that the women went to the wrong tomb. Now, you need to think this through. If that's the case, then the men went to the wrong tomb. And if the men went to the wrong tomb, then the Jews went to the wrong tomb. And if the Jews went to the wrong tomb, then the Romans went to the wrong tomb. And if the Romans went to the wrong tomb, the angel was at the wrong tomb. Because they were all there together. Everybody was at the same tomb. And it was the right tomb. So it's a ridiculous theory, but one that people want to try to latch on to if they don't want to believe in the resurrection. 
But the most common theory proposed today in most major universities by skeptics and professors who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus is known as the swoon theory. This view says Jesus didn't die. It says he passed out on the cross, he lost some blood, he was put in a damp tomb, a one and a half to two ton stone was rolled against the entrance, but this damp tomb healed him and he was revived again. As you can imagine, just from hearing it, the problems with this view are also numerous. One of them is this. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be beaten beyond recognition. And indeed, Jesus was. The Gospels tell us that he was so weak, he couldn't carry his own crossbar. So Simon the Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene, was compelled to carry the crossbar. Then, when he got to the crucifixion, spikes were driven through his wrists and his feet. Guards thrust a spear in his side. Water and blood came out separate, which is a valid indicator of death. Three professional executioners signed his death warrant. He was wrapped in over 100 pounds or approximately 100 pounds of linen. And somehow the damp tomb healed him? So here's what they have to say. Now remember, Jesus is encased in approximately 100 pounds of, of cloth and spices. So Jesus jumped up, hobbled over, and pushed away a one and a half to two ton stone. He tied the guard unit up with his linen cloth and appeared as Lord of life. That's how you have to explain it. A professor of economics at the University of London said, quote, anyone who believes that would have to have the intellect of a poached egg, end quote. Well, there must be a lot of poached eggs running around because, frankly, a lot of people believe the swoon theory. A lot of very intelligent people believe the swoon theory because they don't want to believe in the resurrection. All of these theories, and there are, that's only four of the most popular, but all these theories are proposed because men and women don't want to believe the truth. They don't want to accept the facts. If you do the research, you will find that there are approximately 114 pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 114 pieces of evidence. Let me develop each one of them now in great detail. Just kidding, okay? <laughs> Let me just mention three, all right? Three of them. One is the family of Jesus. His family did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. In fact, one time his family was so embarrassed that they asked him to leave Galilee, which is up north where their home was, to go to Jerusalem to teach. Go, Jesus, go there and say this stuff that you're saying. You're embarrassing us. In fact, Mark tells us on one occasion they went, the family of Jesus went to try to save him from himself. They didn't believe in him. But when you come to the book of Acts, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He wrote the book in the New Testament over near the end of our New Testaments called the Epistle of James. How do you explain that change in James? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. 
That's what transformed James. A second proof for the resurrection is the body of Jesus. Who has the body? The dead body of Jesus has never been seen since the apostles began declaring the resurrection. Where's the body? A third proof is the change in the disciples. Historical tradition tells us that all the disciples except one died a martyr's death, even the man that is commonly called Doubting Thomas. Before the resurrection, the disciples were scared to show themselves. But after the resurrection, they were bold and fearless. They all gave their lives for one thing, an empty tomb. It meant the world to them. What does the resurrection mean to you personally? There are two applications I want us to consider this morning that are based on the resurrection of Jesus. Two applications, one for each group or each of the two groups of individuals in the world. After all, there are only really two kinds of people in the world. There are those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they are headed for an eternity in heaven. And there are those who have not received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and they are headed for the judgment of eternal hell. Every person present here today falls into one of those two categories. There's no in-between. Just two categories. So I want us to consider an application for each group. First, we'll consider the application for those who do know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. To do that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. In this one chapter alone, the concept of resurrection is spoken of over 20 times. At the end of this chapter, now remember, this is the resurrection chapter. So at the end, Paul wants to give an application based on the truth of resurrection. Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. So Paul gives an inspired application that flows out of the doctrine of the resurrection. And notice what he says in verse 58. Last verse of the chapter. Therefore, that is in light of all of this that I've said about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The application for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is that we should be steadfast, endurance, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. If we really believe that God raised up Jesus from the dead and that God is going to one day raise us up from the dead to be victorious with him, then we will be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The resurrection should give us an eternal perspective on life so that we value eternal things more than earthly things and so that we will take the words of Jesus seriously to lay up treasure in heaven. God will balance the scales in eternity when we are risen to be with Christ. So be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't get sidetracked. Don't 
Don't defect. Don't go off, you know, get off track. Stay focused. Stay true to the Lord. Stay faithful to the Lord. That's the application for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Bound in the work of the Lord. Don't see your Christian life as sitting in the pews on Sunday. Live for Christ daily, at work, at school, on your athletic team, in your dorm, in your neighborhood. Live for Christ daily. Be steadfast, immovable. Then the application to those who have not received Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior is found in Acts chapter 17. So go back to the left to Acts chapter 17. After the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. As we come to this passage of Scripture, we're sort of jumping into the middle of a section that is telling about Paul's second missionary journey. We're going to pick it up down in verse 22, where Paul is just about to speak to a group of men who are assembled on Mars Hill, also known as the Areopagus. So here's Paul's message. And by the way, I remember years ago when I was preaching through the book of Acts and I came to this section, because the people and the culture uh, of, of, these, of this situation is so parallel to us today, I titled the message, Paul in the USA. Because this, this maybe more than any other setting in all the New Testament, parallels the United States, this group of people. So think of it through that grid. Here's what Paul's message was to them. It would be the same message to people here in the United States. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Some translations, superstitious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on a on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, here's his application, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Notice Paul's application here to those who have not received Christ. He basically gives three points of application. Number one, God demands repentance. Number two, Jesus is going to judge someday. And number three, the resurrection guarantees it. 
The resurrection guarantees that judgment. So that's what I would say to those of you here this morning who have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God demands repentance. You need to repent, which means you change your mind. You change your thinking. You turn from your sin. You let go of whatever is holding you back. God demands repentance. And those who refuse to repent will be judged. And contrary to popular thinking uh, of people who only see Jesus as loving and totally accepting, Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who is going to judge. For those who refuse to repent and receive Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus means certain judgment. Jesus died, he arose, and he's coming back as judge. He will bring forth every man to life from the grave, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. Those are his own words. That's what he himself said he's going to do. That's why verse 30 says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, God today is commanding you to repent. He commands you to change your mind, to turn from your sin, to let go of whatever holds you back, and to receive Jesus Christ because the resurrection means certain judgment if you don't. You could say it this way. The resurrection is a fork in the road of decision. You cannot remain neutral when you face the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Understand it this way. If you have not chosen to believe the resurrection and follow the risen Christ, you've chosen to face the judgment of God. It's important that you hear that. Because some people want to say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to really believe in Jesus. I don't want to follow him. But, you know, I, it's not that I have anything against God or anything against Jesus. I'm not choosing, you know, I'm not making a choice to be against him or anything like that. Yes, you have chosen to face the judgment of God. Understand that. If you don't choose to believe the resurrection and follow Jesus, you've chosen to face the judgment of God. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That is a historical fact. That is a historical truth. Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, those of us who know and love him, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And to those who don't know him, repent, because judgment is coming. And that is an absolute certainty. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes, ask yourself, which category are you in? As I mentioned earlier, there are really only two categories of people in the world. Those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are headed for heaven with him. Those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are headed for judgment. Which category are you in? If you are one of those who have received Christ, then hear the Holy Spirit's application to your, your own heart and life. Be steadfast. Don't be fickle. Don't be tossed to and fro by this world. Be steadfast, immovable, fixed and focused on Christ. 
Don't backslide for a while, then come back, and then get sidetracked, and then come back. No, stay on track, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't get discouraged. Don't say, oh, it's not worth it. I'm going to throw in the towel. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's the application to those of us who know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, the application to you is repent. Repent because judgment is coming. Turn to Jesus Christ this morning. Call out to him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Father, we, many of us here, have heard the story of the resurrection so many times, and we, we just don't ever want it to become commonplace to us. To, to even say something like, what an amazing event, is an understatement. The tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. To give everyone who has any interest at all the opportunity to go see that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. Just as he predicted and promised, he raised himself from the dead, Father, you raised him from the dead. He is Lord of life, and life is worth the living just because he lives. And Father, we also recognize that the resurrection of Jesus means certain judgment. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, one day he will raise every person to life, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of damnation. And so, Father, we pray for any who are here this morning who are in that category, who as it stands now would someday be raised to the resurrection of damnation. May your Holy Spirit work in their hearts this day. And whatever, and you know all of us perfectly, whatever it is that has been a hindrance or has held them back, may you break through that. May your Spirit cause them to let that go, to be willing to forsake sin and turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. Father, take the truth, the glorious truth of the resurrection, and apply it to each and every one of our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.